Okay, Exodus 33. I want to remind you uh, that we have been in a narrative portion of Scripture now for two weeks consecutively, and that's a change of pace for us. The previous seven chapters that we studied were law. They were designed to tell us what God thinks, what God's plan is for his people. Uh, The majority of them centered around a building, a structure very unlike anything that we have today called a tabernacle. And like most Hebrew things that exist, it was named after its function. The word tabernacle doesn't mean anything on its own aside from that someone is going to dwell among another group of people. And so God named this building, this traveling tent that he designed after its purpose. He told his people, this is going to be the place that I'll touch base. My presence will actually come into contact with the earth. And it'll be right in the middle of you, my people, a new people that I've built and created. And as you follow my ways and as you worship me, I will shape you and you will bless the world. You will be like a new Adam and a new Eve. We will start over with a new creation with you and you will build out what was supposed to be the plan all along. And then, of course, as we read last week, the Israelites found a way to massively screw that up. Immediately, as soon as God was done speaking, the words have barely left his divine lips and made it onto the stone tablets that Moses carried, and Moses turns his attention to the base of the mountain, and what does he find? A gigantic um, pleasure fest is a nice way to say what's going on at the base of the mountain. Um, Different translations of the Bible translate what's going on down there different ways. Our ESV version that we typically use says that the people had broken loose, but the translation can be anywhere from orgy all the way to have rebelled against God and acted against him and his presence intentionally. Some variation of that is happening. This is not just a group of people who've been misled. This is a group of people who are willingly walking away from the God who's given them rules and regulations and expectations because they don't want what he has to offer them. They want what they have to offer themselves. They think they can solve their own problems. All they need is a priest to be willing to go along with their plans. And unfortunately, they have that in Aaron, a man who's supposed to be the high priest of God and instead spends all of his time casting a metal animal for God's people to worship, and then he tries to act like it just leapt out of the fire on accident when his brother comes down the mountain and confronts him. Now, toward the close of our time last week, we found our resolution to the category of idols that we named sacred cows. We found the resolution in Jesus. And that shouldn't be a big surprise to you. Jesus is the only place that we find any resolution that's meaningful in our lives. But specifically, Jesus is for us the door through which we enter into God's kingdom. We who are sinners, which all of us are, even me. Jesus is the way in even for those of us who have worked our way out, especially if we have disguised our rebellion in religion. That's what the Israelites did in Exodus 32. They wrapped all the wickedness of their hearts up in the trappings of good religiosity and they found a way to practice it in a way that made them very happy and was incredibly offensive to God. Now we briefly touched on the source of our idolatry last week, but we're going to spend the majority of our time today trying to understand the wounds that form us into idol worshipers. That will be a theme for us today, wounds. What has wounded us? What do we do with those things? We'll try specifically to answer two questions, and if you are taking notes, if you still have your Exodus scripture journal from a year ago, we should probably give you a prize if you've managed to keep up with it all this time. But you can take notes anywhere that you take notes, and here are the two questions that we'll try to answer today that I believe God's word is going to answer for us. First is this. The question is, where do our wounds take us? Where do our wounds take us? If we follow them, where will we go? If they lead our lives, if they lead our decision-making, What kind of life will we lead? Where do our wounds take us? And then the second question, and don't get tongue twisted here, it's similar to the first. The second question is where can we take our wounds? 
So where do our wounds take us? That's where we'll start, and then we will land the plane together by answering the question, where can we take our wounds? So we'll look now again to chapter 33. I'd encourage you to turn in your Bible if you have a copy to that chapter and, and keep it open today while we work through these verses. We'll look at verses 1 through 3, and I have just a few comments that may clarify for you what's happening. Let's read together what Brian just read to us. Yahweh said to Moses, depart, leave. Now, why is that significant? Well, because Moses has been with his people, with God's people, at this mountain for 40 plus days. It's probably closer now to 60 days at this point. And they kind of have messed everything up to the point that it seems like God is dismissing them because their time with him is over. He's going to make that clear in just a minute. He says, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, depart and go to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said to your offspring, I will give this land. God is hearkening way back to the beginning of the book of Genesis when he first spoke with Abraham and promised him the land that's now called Canaan. Verse 2. God is still speaking. He says, I will send an angel before you. Another word for angel, that concept is a messenger. It's not necessarily a naked person with wings. It just means someone who speaks on behalf of God who is of divine nature. And I will drive out all of the ites, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. So go up to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. But, and here is a big change, easy to miss. God says, I will not go among you. Why? Well, he tells Moses right away, lest, in other words, if I were to do that, here's what could happen, I would consume you on the way. And consume doesn't just mean absorb you into my everlasting love. This is like the way that fire consumes or a rabid animal consumes. There will be nothing of you left, is what God is describing. Because, and here's the source of what would lead to this kind of consumption, you are stiff-necked. In other words, you have not learned your lesson. A person with a stiff neck won't bow. That's what God is implying. These people will not submit themselves to him. They've learned to do certain religious things. They proved that last chapter when they found a way to turn some little pieces of God's system into this weird idol worship of this golden cow. They are listening, but they're not internalizing what God has told them. They don't really love that God's in charge of them. And so God says, you know what? Fine then. If this is how it's going to be, I actually love you enough that I will take a step away. Because if I were to be in your midst, it would be the end of you. And I don't think that's what you necessarily want. In fact, Moses, one chapter ago in Exodus 32, asked God, please don't destroy your people. And God is now saying, in order to do that, I'll have to stay away from you. So let me be clear here. God won't break his promise to lead the people to Canaan. That's good news. He's keeping his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, he will not go with the people. A messenger is as close as he will get. What this brings to mind in my life is when I was a kid, I had a really good friend named Landon. And Landon and I bonded, and some of you are going to roll your eyes at me, but we bonded over Pokemon, okay? It's a real thing that happened. The first video game that I got, Christmas of 1998, I got a Game Boy Pocket. It was bright red, and my aunt got me Pokemon red and blue. I didn't need them both, but she got them both to make sure I had everything that I wanted, and I was immediately hooked. I remember the whole next Christmas day I didn't eat, I didn't go to the bathroom. I was, just, I was just right there with 16 bits of pixels and sound. It was like I had entered into a new world. And so I met this kid at church who also had a Pokemon game, and he had the oft-coveted and extremely rare Game Link cable. 
that can plug two Game Boys into each other. Because when you have a wireless device, what do you want more than a thing to plug it into so you're not wireless anymore, right? But we needed it. It was the only way we could get all the Pokemon. And there was no prize at the end of the game if you got them all. You just felt better about yourself. I guess I never did it, so I didn't have that particular dose of confidence. But we would go to these Pokemon things. We would ride in the car. His mom would come pick me up. We'd sit in the backseat of the minivan, and we'd go play Pokemon cards at Books a Million, the local the bookstore. We'd go on Saturday morning. We'd enter into these tournaments. I don't think any of the kids really knew the rules. The 16-year-old kid who worked there, who was somehow in charge of the rest of us, who were 10, he didn't know the rules. He was just trying to keep people from killing each other. So on the way home... Oftentimes, whether I cheated or not, I won't tell you, but I always would win, is all I'll say. I found a way. Where there's a will, there's a way. Landon would typically choose to ignore me as punishment for beating him in the Pokemon tournament. And usually it wasn't just the two of us. There was somebody else present as well. And so he would do that really petty thing where he would talk to the other person about me. He'd be like, if you would just please let Philip know the next time that you see him. I'm like one seatbelt away from this kid, okay? I am not out of earshot at all. He could be whispering, and I would know everything that he said. If you would just please let Philip know the next time you see him that I did not appreciate him stealing my Bulbasaur in the second round of the Pokemon tournament today, this is the kind of communication system that God is setting up with his people. It doesn't feel very good. He's saying to them, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. You, you won't see my face again. All this stuff you've been used to, you remember the miracles? It's over. I'll still give you some law. I'll provide you with some leadership, but I can't come around anymore. There's too much between us, you and I. And here's what happens when Moses passes that sentiment along to the people. Very interesting. Verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous, that's an interesting perspective. They seem to think this is an awful thing that happened. When they heard this disastrous word, they mourned which I never mourned when Landon was mad at me. I didn't care. I was like, I'll beat you next week, and we'll see who's going to ignore who. But these people love the Lord their God. In fact, something has shifted in them that we're going to discover soon, but let's keep reading. So in response to their mourning, no one put on their ornaments, not Christmas tree ornaments. We're talking earrings, neck rings, bangles, headbands, anything that the ancient Egyptian people would have valued that they handed over to God's people when they left Egypt has now become the jewelry. It's become the spoils of war for God's people. These are the same kinds of pieces of jewelry that Aaron asked the people to give him a chapter ago. He didn't even really think they would surrender them, but they were willing to in order to produce a new idol. For the Lord had said to Moses, in addition to the, I'm not going to go with you, this is verse 5, he said, tell the people of Israel, you are stiff-necked. And if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So it's no longer theoretical. Now it's like, When the time comes, it's going to be ugly. It's going to go poorly for you because of what you have done. So in response to that, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. In other words, can you bring yourselves down even one notch? You are so proud. Will you even do this one thing that I'm asking you to do? And thankfully, verse 6, the people did. They stripped themselves of their ornaments, and this stays a part of their culture. From Mount Horeb onward is telling you until they arrived in Canaan, there are two whole books of the Bible left before they even get close to the edge of the promised land. This is a significant change in their culture, and it's a response to realizing that God is not playing games with them, and that the worst thing that could happen to them is not that God would do something painful, it's that God would leave. That's the worst case scenario. That's what produces change for these people. Because what a difference a day makes, right? Yesterday, Israel was very confident, very content, very happy, almost excited that Moses and God seemed to have gone away. 
they confidently approached Aaron and by way of mob justice convinced him to build for them an idol, that, that they would lead themselves into idolatry. What's changed now? Why do they care? Can't they just build a new idol? It can't be that they're this upset because Moses ground up their precious golden cow. They're still covered in jewelry. They can still make more idols to throw orgies in front of, right? I mean, why is the question that I ask. What would cause the distance from God to be interpreted as freedom and blessing on one day and to be interpreted as disastrous, to quote the Bible, the next day? Wouldn't we think that for God's people, leadership without oversight would be ideal at this point? Why would God's people be this upset if they hope to escape God in Exodus 32 and now God agrees with them that it would be better if he just kept his distance? What has happened for them? I can tell you what they've experienced. The change is not so much that they've gained a new understanding of God. The change is experiential for them. They followed their wounds and they did not get what they were looking for. That's what Exodus 32 is about. I told you last week, the thing that motivates us to erect sacred cows in front of God's presence to defend and protect the idols that we don't even really know that we have is because typically we've lost something valuable to us. We've lost the good old days, a sense of belonging when the church was roaring and full of people and there were people getting baptized every Sunday. These are the things that become trophies in our heads and we become married to that idea as the only version of ministry that's effective. And so we start to die on those hills. We refuse to open our minds and our hearts to new movements of God. We refuse to cooperate with people who might be a little bit different than what we're comfortable with. We saw last week where Israel's wounds led them, but now something about that journey has changed their minds. Now they are ready to do things God's way. So I told you before, the first question that we hope to answer today is where do our wounds take us? And like I said a second ago, last week we identified that wounds are typically the source of our sacred cows. We defined a sacred cow as something that we're bound to, whether it's emotionally or spiritually, we become bound to a thing within the church in a much stronger sense than we're bound to Jesus. We begin to associate and have greater loyalty to a thing, a program, a seat, a paint color, a song than we have to our Savior himself. And we begin to believe that if we lost all that stuff, it would somehow devalue our God when that isn't the story that God ever tells about himself. Now, while it's true that wounds are often the source of our sacred cows, I think in a more broad sense, wounds are almost always the source of any of our idolatry. We chase after the wrong things. We seek to worship them because of the pain that we carry. Our desire to worship the wrong things is rooted in the damage that has been done to us. And it works like a cycle. In the early years of our personal freedom, which in the American West typically happens between ages 12 and 20, we start realizing that we have wounds, we would call them weaknesses, and we try to build artificially strengths into our lives to compensate for those things. We become sort of like spiritual cyborgs, if you know what I mean. We start adding and augmenting and adjusting parts of ourselves that really aren't our business to control to try to form ourselves into someone else. We add new behaviors to our lifestyles. We augment the way that we present ourselves. We change the things that we're interested in, or at least we learn to lie about that in front of people whom we wish would respect us more. We especially change our appearance in this age range of 12 to 20 because we want to connect with a certain kind of person who we admire or we desire to be like. We bust out the makeup, we get a new haircut, we start wearing different clothes when we get to college, or we get a new job, or we join a new friend group because we think that will make us enough like those people that they will like us that we'll be in, that we won't be alone anymore, that we won't be lonely anymore. And frankly, all of us as human beings enter into our earliest years of formation at a deficit. Now, why is that? 
if we can trace it one step further. Because none of our families of origin are truly whole. And this is true regardless of how you grew up. I'm not picking on some of you who had really bad childhoods, okay? Part of my responsibility as an elder and a pastor is to do premarital counseling with people. And my wife and I, in the three years that we've been here, and then a few times before we arrived in Alaska, we've sat down with a number of different couples, and we've tried to help them get to know each other better before they get married, to try to maybe reveal a little bit more than they would naturally bring up on their own. And here's what I can tell you. It doesn't matter if people grew up in a house like mine, where the mom and the dad are still married, and the father worked in ministry, but he took great care of the family, and there was always enough money, not too much, but just enough, food on the table, activities happened, there was lots of freedom and exploration. It doesn't matter if you came from that background, or if your background is more like my wife's, a more broken version of the nuclear family. I have never asked anybody, is there anything you would change in your own parenting from the way that your parents treated you? I've never asked anybody that question and had them say, no, my parents were perfect. Never. And you're chuckling because you're going, that's not my parents, and it's sure not my spouse's parents. No way. Sorry if they're in the room right now. We carry this baggage. Even if we're brought up right, we still carry baggage. Why? Because the people who helped form us were incomplete themselves. This is a cycle. There's a theme in Scripture that deals with generational blessings and generational curses, and a lot of times we don't talk about that stuff in our New Testament world, but it's very prevalent in the Old and New Testament both. It is part of the human experience that we inherit the things that shape us from people who did not have it figured out when they handed us those tools. They don't know. And so our experience is that we now have to learn from people who have their own irrational fears, their own anxieties, and their own wounds what to do with our wounds. None of our families of origin are perfect. We come into our own, if you will, naturally drawn toward anything that claims to do one of two things. So try to follow me here. First, we are drawn toward things that claim to accept us the way that we are. Now, that's a lie in any context outside of Jesus' love. I'll just spoil that for you. If there's any group of people, whether online or in real life, a sports team, a Sunday school class, a club that you're a part of, even your natural-born family, they may do their absolute best to accept you in every circumstance, but unless they are rooted and grounded in Christ, they're not able to do that. Even if they would like to, there will come a point where they will be unable to take any more of you, and they will need time and distance, or they will explode. That's how we react to each other if we're not rooted and grounded in Christ. So that draws us in, just the lie, just the idea that somebody who's maybe a little bit more like us than anybody that we've met before would let us in and would love on us and would build us up and would hold our life up, not going to happen. The other thing that draws us in is the promise that what is wrong with us can be changed. If we would just be more like X, then the Y that we don't like about our life would be different. If we would come further into this group, if we would take more religious steps, this is the whole reason that people join cults. Do you know this? Because they want so desperately to find a thing that really doesn't exist. Often, when we first enter into the real world, we're not mature enough yet to actually pursue real healing. We don't even know we need it at 18 years old. How could we? Every dating relationship we've ever been in has been an 18-month makeout festival, right? We haven't really shared our life with anybody at that point. We don't know how we're wounded. We don't know what needs to be healed. And so instead of doing the hard work of acknowledging what's really wrong, we settle for things that hide our wounds, we're happy to have a band-aid, a little bit of makeup, a new hair color and haircut, and we feel a bit better about ourselves. Human history is like this, if we zoom out even further. Human history is a series of wound-driven paths that have been walked by every person from adolescence into adulthood. It's a cycle that you see everywhere. 
pick any book, any famous book that kids have to read in school. Shakespeare, it's all over Shakespeare that people are wounded and they mess each other up as a result and they don't know how to deal with their problems and so they just run further into their mess and typically everybody dies at the end, which is pretty abysmal, but eh, maybe a lesson to be learned there. Take a more morally relevant book, To Kill a Mockingbird, is a story all about the wounds that people carry and the ways that those wounds will push them to do things that you and I would find deplorable in 2022. You could pick up the newspaper tomorrow and you would see article after article that's all about people running from their wounds and stepping deeper into their idols to try to heal themselves. And this probably goes without saying, but every reality TV show ever is only about how wounded people are and it's entertaining for us. We like it. It's fun to watch other people make mistakes because of how bad they've been treated in the past. And that's not a fun way to hear that, but that's really what's going on on the television set. We are obsessed with wounds, not our own. We can't even see them. But we love to watch other people do weird stuff because of how badly they've been treated. The weird stuff that they believe. The odd perspectives they have on life because of their upbringing, whether it was too strict or too loose. But these are our wounds that we're looking at when we take the time to observe these things. So if I can shift gears a little bit for you, what I want to try to do is really answer that question. If we follow those wounds, if we really all have these holes punched in us, if our souls are more like Swiss cheese than not, which I would argue that they are, then where do we go when we follow those wounds? Because I think we're all drawn to do that. We are led to believe that if we can drown our pain out, our life will be better. And so I'm going to list some very common idols categorically, and you're going to roll your eyes at how predictable they are, but I think they relate to us. The first category of idol that we try to use to self-soothe our wounds away is relationships. This is typically the first idol that we really have access to in our adolescence, depending on the rules our parents give us for dating or not. When we're in our early teen years, we begin to interact with another person outside of our family unit for the first time in a meaningful way. Really, we might have had a best friend before that, but more often than not, that person is of the same sex as us. This is our first real go at exploring the world through the eyes of somebody who's totally different from us. The question that looking at our relationship idols tries to answer is why? Why do our wounds drive us into each other? Well, I can think of at least three reasons that I'll share with you. The first is that oftentimes, whether it's real or not, we sense a lack of approval in our family of origin. So you've heard daddy issues, right? You've met men who have no emotional response to anything because of how disconnected they were from their mother in their upbringing. We come out of our family of origin believing that the people who are supposed to care most about us will never really like who we've become. And so we run from that. That's wounding. You can act like it's not. You can brush it off and throw yourself at your career or whatever thing it is that you think you're good at. But deep down underneath all of that stuff you've succeeded at will remain a cut. A cut that you can't heal. A cut that no trophy can bind closed. No amount of success can take away for you. Second is a general sense of being misunderstood or demonized by the culture that we grew up in. So maybe it's not your family of origin. Maybe your parents were great and they took good care of you and they embraced all the weird quirky stuff you were into when you were a preteen, but you just never fit into your hometown. Or you never found a friend at school or the church you were a part of just wasn't a great thing for you. This is sort of my story, if I can be honest with you. I grew up in deep East Texas and I was sort of like a bookish Nerd, I really liked punk pop music, I still do. I love to read fantasy novels, I still do. But I grew up in a place where the size of your belt buckle and the number of inches that your farm truck sat off the ground was more important. Just shooting you straight. Much more important than who you were under the Wranglers and the Carhartt work shirt, okay? And that wasn't me. 
I was wearing like cutoff jeans and sandals all the time, flip-flops, and nobody really liked me, and I didn't like anybody else that much, and I never felt that I fit in, and it led me to believe the lie that once I got to college, I could reinvent myself, and that worked for about a semester and a half, and then I was exhausted. I couldn't fool anybody anymore. The girl I was dating at the time was exhausted by being with me because I was totally narcissistic. All I could ever do was talk about myself and ask her to help me gauge whether it was working and people were liking me and I was breaking out of this shell that I felt that I'd been trapped in for 18 years. I mean, that doesn't sound like a fun date to the movies, right? It wasn't good. But that was who I was. I believed that because I never fit in for real, it was up to me to change that. That I had to run towards something or an image of somebody else and if I could just get there, all my problems would disappear. That's an oversimplification, but it's what I believed. And then third, in the category of relationships, and probably the most legitimate, and the one that we need to be the most careful about today, is real trauma happens. And that leads us into relationships that we have no business participating in. Something happens to us that we hate within our childhood. And though we run as hard as we can from it, it still defines us. That's the tragedy of trauma, is we didn't choose it in the first place, and so we can't unchoose it. It's incredibly challenging to have this a part of your story. We begin to believe if we could just reinvent ourselves in a new place or with new people, maybe the trauma would stay behind in whatever place we came from. I would argue from the outside looking in that this is a very common tactic among millennials. We try a new job in a new city, and we just imagine that if we can do that, maybe that version of us that haunts us those images that we can't get out of our head, maybe they'll go away. And we jump into relationships totally ill-equipped to give anything of value to anybody else. And all we want from them is the approval that we think if we could just stack enough of that in the other side of the scales, maybe that deep pain would go away. But it's a lie. And those relationships become an idol. The second category of idols that we are drawn to is substances. I told you you're going to roll your eyes. I promise the third one is not rock and roll, okay? But maybe for some of you it should be. The question we're asking when we look at substances as an idol to medicate what's wrong is why would a person try to augment the way that they sense the world? You think of your five senses, right? I'm not going to list them all because I'll forget one, but you know what they are. You have them. You're using most of them right now. If I am so wounded, this is sort of the first answer to that question, if I'm so wounded that I live with real legitimate pain, I'm talking every minute of every day all the time, that I just feel this excruciating sense of ouch all the time, then numbing myself to all of life becomes reasonable. Because it means that along with all of life, all of that pain will go numb too. And so I become drawn to a thing that can take that away from me. It becomes an idol in my life because I give myself to it. It's not just medicine that helps. It becomes the thing I need or I can't be me anymore. And then second, and I've seen this up close in, in my past with some relationships I've been a part of, Sometimes we have a sense of morbid fascination with a substance because we realize what it means for someone who should have loved us well, a mother, a father, a sibling, a guardian, to have instead given their loyalty to a pill or a drink instead of us. And we're fascinated by that concept. What must this thing make you feel like if it's good enough to deny a natural relationship? For example, and this is not true in my case, but it's been true for several people that I've known personally, if my mom loved alcohol so much that she chose alcohol over me, even though I hate her for that, it must be pretty amazing to make someone abandon their child. Maybe it's worth a try. 
maybe in the darkest, deepest moments of self-hatred, I would turn to the thing that I would argue in a moment of sanity actually drove my family apart. This is how these things become cyclical. It's not that we're foolish and we just didn't understand that it was this awful thing that broke our family. We know that it did it, but it was so powerful that we're drawn to it. Our hearts want a thing to worship that's strong. We're looking for something that can bear the weight of our souls, and even if it's evil, maybe it's better than what we have. That's the way that we justify with an idol. And then the last category that we'll speak about today is control. Idols of control. Can money or power keep my demons away? Again, quickly, three categories here. I am wounded, perhaps, in a way where poverty shaped my upbringing. This is a thing that motivates me toward money, possibly. Having little either drove my parents to their own idols, or perhaps it dragged them away to work when I felt that I needed them most. And so now I am tempted to fill my own lack as a child with abundance as an adult. It's a version of I will never be like them and I will never do what they did. And yet, just like that morbid fascination with substances, we drive ourselves into the thing that we hated about the generation before us. Or maybe I carry a deep sense of despair with me because I've never seen anyone do anything that lasts. Maybe I have a tr had a transient upbringing. We never lived in one place for very long. We never put roots down. We never were able to build relationships outside of our family. Or maybe my parents' own demons kept our lives wild and inconsistent as kids. And now, I am committed to providing real and lasting generational stability for my family. That sounds good, doesn't it? That sounds brave, courageous, noble. But the dark side is, often we will do that even if we have to sacrifice healthy boundaries in order to build that stability. We lay our own lives at the altar of this idea that we think would bless our family instead of just being with them in a way that the people that we needed were never there for us. And then finally, potentially, an experience that would drive us toward idols of control is the idea that other people's choices have ruined my life. I've been a victim of people bigger and stronger and meaner and more ruthless than me and catch this church because this is very real. I believe this is the root of most of the time when Christian people lose their loyalty to Jesus and attack one another. It is this at the root. Though I believe in my heart that I will never be like the person who took advantage of me, I become more and more like them in order to never be a victim again. If it's the only way out, I'll take it. If it's the only way I can fight you off and get you away long enough to take a breath and feel like I can survive, I will become the monster who took advantage of me to get some distance and breathe. When I am backed into a corner, I become the people who hurt me. And this is just three broad categories. We all carry various degrees of these wounds, and frankly, dozens more that we won't address today. And they stack on top of each other, and they weave together in ways that are subtle and complex and deeply spiritual. These are not just physical problems that we carry. These are things that form and shape us. The point is this. We may eventually leave the context we were formed in but we will carry with us the wounds that we picked up as we were formed. And where will these wounds take us? Where does each of these idols terminate when it's gone to its extreme? It takes us the same place that the wounds of Israel took them, away from God. That's the bottom line. It doesn't matter where you think you're going. Think of Jonah. If God says go to Nineveh, anywhere that's not Nineveh is not right. That's the way that we tend to handle our wounds. God gives us an answer and we go, that would hurt too bad. 
I could never endure that. People would not believe me if I told them what had happened to me. If this ever came up in my community setting, people would think I was wicked or filthy or worthless. So I'll just pack it down and try to wait until tomorrow to think about it again. But that doesn't heal us. When we drive ourselves away from the living God, the God who loves us, the only person who actually does accept us, who would accept even our wounds, if we would be bold enough to give them to him, we find ourselves isolated and alone, and the cycle repeats. This idol failed, so I'll try that one instead. This idol used to be good enough, and now three or four idols later, I'll go back to it because maybe I can get that same high that I used to. Think of the context of Israel. Where did their wounds lead them when they left Egypt? And what wounds did they have? They had all of the same wounds that I just described to you. They were all running from their families of origin. Every million and a half of them was fleeing the place that their family had lived for 400 years because of the abuse that had happened to them there. They were all victims of real trauma. They all wanted to numb themselves instead of dealing with the harsh reality of their wounds. And they were desperate for control over their own lives. The strict and loving rule of life that Yahweh taught them seemed too oppressive, and frankly, he was taking too long to get things done if you were to ask them what they thought. These are their words in Exodus 32. We don't know, we know where Moses has gone. He's been gone a long time. We don't know what God is doing. Why is he idle? We'll just have to we'll take things into our own hands. They felt the modern American urge to keep moving. They needed something louder. They needed something faster. They needed something bigger, something that could numb them a little longer, something that could distract them for a few more minutes so they wouldn't have to think about what's really going on in their heart and mind. Scared to death of silence at the foot of God's mountain. Terrified of what it meant to just wait on him. Haunted by the thoughts and memories swirling in their collective consciousness. Our wounds take us the same place that Israel's wounds took them away from God, away from life, if I can be more practical with you. Maybe you have no real concept of God today. That's fine. But what God will give you is life, and what he'll do in your life is he'll heal you. And those are things that are appealing to you, whether you're open to a religious deity or not. When we walk away from God, we walk away from any real chance we have at ever actually getting things right. If we have any interest in breaking any of the cycles that our families have passed down through the family tree, the only person with any power to break those branches off and graft them into a new vine is God. That's what Jesus said he would do. He said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. If you separate yourself from me, there will be no use for you. So oh, be aware, acknowledge where you came from. That's good and right. We should process those things, but be willing and be ready to be grafted in. But understand... The dead parts, the fungus, the infection, the parasites, the stuff that we carry, if you follow my analogy, the good gardener will prune and he will clean. And it may not always be comfortable, but it will end. That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of any kind of mortification of sin is it's effective. It hurts, but it ends. It's over at some point and you're still alive. When the other option that you have is you slowly endure and ignore and hide and become a slave to the darkness that you inherited and eventually it remains and you die. That's the other option. And it's passed down to whoever's next because what choice do they have but to learn from you? God is the only person who can stop the cycle of our woundedness and what's maybe more important than his ability is his interest in doing that. I would argue he's the only person who really wants to do that work in your life. Even if you pay your therapist a lot of money to listen to you talk about all the junk that happened when you were growing up, probably if that money dried up, that therapist's time would too. God doesn't demand a penny from you. He is present, 
He is listening. He is willing. He is capable. He is smarter than any therapist you've ever encountered. He's more able to understand the neuropaths in your mind, the science of how you're formed and changed, the, the DNA and the core molecules of your brain, the things that fire, the synapses that carry memories. They belong to him. And if you will give them to him, he will not just hand you platitudes painted on a nice wooden sign to hang in your kitchen. He will change your life. In fact, he may move you from death into life for the very first time. That's why we're here. We believe that that's possible. This reality, the tangible, transformative truth that God actually cares, that he really does want to break your spiritual chains and heal your wounds and make you into a whole person, this reality is where we find the answer to our second question today. Where can we take our wounds? If we know where our wounds will take us and we don't want to go there, then we have to make a decision to take our wounds somewhere. Our wounds will try to convince us that we need to get out from under any kind of authority, away from anyone who might get close enough to use us or to hurt us again or worse. But our experience, as we actually wall ourselves off, as we begin to willingly live a life of separation and independence from everybody in an attempt to never be hurt again, our experience is actually the opposite. Our experience is the more time we spend out from underneath God's rule, the more chaos erupts and multiplies and magnifies in our lives. So where can we take our wounds? You know what I'm going to say. It's true regardless. We can take our wounds to Jesus. That's the point of verses 7 through 11 that you heard read earlier today. The reason that we get a quick glimpse in those verses of what things used to be like. That's why the Bible says Moses used to set up the tent of meeting. This is not true anymore. The Bible wants us to understand what has been lost by God's people. As God says that he will stay away from his people, that intimacy, that closeness, that relationship is what disappears. Now, not only is God's system gone, he says he will be gone. Israel had a God that they could bring their wounds to. That's all Moses used to spend his time talking to God about in the tent of meeting, was representing what was wrong among the people, the wounds that they carried, the, the fear that they had, the ways that they would damage each other. God would listen, and God would stay close, and God would give them a way forward, a way of freedom and life, but not anymore. And that is why Israel was partying yesterday, but is mourning today. Because they followed their wounds to the golden calf, and all they found waiting for them there was pain and death. Well, now they've repented. Now all they want is for God to dwell among them, and yet he refuses. So what they need now is a mediator. Now they need someone who will stand before God and plead their case. Someone who loves them enough that he would risk dying to restore what they have lost, someone like Moses. Look at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, Lord, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. And yet you've said, I know you by name. You've said, you have also found favor in my sight. So now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, this nation is your people. And the Lord said to Moses, my presence will go with you. And I need to make a note here for you. In your English translation, you can't tell, but that you is singular, and that's incredibly significant. God is saying to Moses, I'll be with you, but the rest of them, they're stiff-necked. I already told you. If I'm going to try to be with them, I'm going to have to destroy them because they're not going to change Moses. They don't care. I gave them everything they needed to live a life of flourishing, and they threw it in the dirt. And I will give you rest in verse 14. And this explains why Moses says to him, if your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. He clarifies, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, God. 
Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? If I can paraphrase, Moses asks God, he says, you say you'll send a messenger, but who are you actually sending? And God says, I'll go with you, but just you, Moses. You're the only person who didn't betray me. And Moses replies and says, well, with just me is not enough, God. We all need you. So please go with us, with all of us. It is with us, it is you with us that makes us who we are. Nothing else matters. So in a microcosm here, God offers Moses all the blessings of the promised land without having to worry about the consuming presence of God himself. And Moses declines. He declines the offer because he knows what many of us have misunderstood, that the promised land itself, the blessing of God, is actually not worth having if God doesn't come along with the deal. God is the point. God is the one whom we want. God is the only one who can heal our wounds. No band-aid, even given from God himself, is ultimately any good if we don't get God, if we don't get back to the God that we lost. That was the point in the garden in the beginning, and it's the objective that Moses understands is worth pursuing. Now, I'll ask you, how challenging is that concept? Are we like that? Are you and I like that? Have we spent enough time in God's presence that we fundamentally crave him and not just his blessings? To the point that nothing else can satisfy us? Or if we could get the blessings that we want without having to deal with God the person, would some of us take that deal? Would that be okay with us? I think some of us might. Some of us tolerate God, I think, because of what he can give us, like a husband or a wife who marries their spouse to get a big house or to get a nice car, or to get access to a lot of money. We prefer when God is away on business because that's when we get to play with his toys without having to endure his presence. Some of us, though we would never shout it out loud, and our hearts cry out that we want more church prestige. We want more attention from the elders. We want a position of authority to lord over people or a rigorous religious system so we can prove our worth and then demand respect from everybody else. But we'll only take that if we can skip the praying and skip the meditating and skip the scripture memorization and all the other disciplines God uses to form us into his image. We don't really want to be with him or like him. We just want his stuff. Some of us. But church, if I can challenge that, if that's you on any level, knowing God is the blessing. And when you push everything else off the table between you and God, he will change your life. When you are just with him, you will be transformed. That's what happened to Moses. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you've spoken, I'll do it because you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and then I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh or the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses is very much like Jesus at the end of this chapter. He is enough like the Israelites to have compassion for them, but he is also unique enough to stand before Yahweh and ask for mercy from him for the people, just like Jesus. Moses chose to turn down God's presence if it was only for him alone, and Jesus left God's presence so that you and I would have God's presence. Jesus experienced God's absence. Mark 15 says he was forsaken by God so that we might be welcomed into the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus was wounded so that we might be healed. That is the most important difference between Jesus and our idols. Our idols are unwilling to pay the high price that our wounds demand. Our codependent relationships implode once we put the full weight of our soul on another person who was never meant to bear that kind of responsibility. Our cycles of substance abuse drag us deeper and deeper in order to attain a similar sense of numbness over time. We find ourselves being owned by the thing that we now think we need to make the pain go away until we've reached the point where we've lost the very life we were trying to protect in the beginning. 
We might find control by striving and grinding and worshiping our work, but even if we attain the highest level of accomplishment in our field, which is a big if, we will quickly realize how lonely it is at the top. When we bring our wounds to our idols, we feel better for a little while, but eventually we are left with the same wounds that we started with and a whole host of new ones. That's where that leads. But Jesus heals us. Jesus will pay for the spiritual care that we need. He will pay the price of all the awful things that we have done trying to outrun the wounds that we started with. He heals our broken minds. He heals our warped spirits. He satisfies our cravings and calms us down enough so that we can think and pray and listen to him. He tends to our wounds. He soothes us. He reminds us that we are loved when all we want to do is run and hide. And eventually, the bleeding stops. Eventually, the wounds that we came to him with are healed. Our old spiritual and emotional limps go away, and he restores what is lost, even what has been taken from us by people with more power than we have. So church, we can take our wounds to Jesus. We need to take our wounds to Jesus. You need to take your wounds to Jesus today. Let me pray that for you. Father, we come to you in need and aware of that need. We are imperfect. We are wrong. God, many of us stand at a point in our lives where we look ahead to what we expect to be decades and decades of growing our family and building relationships and working on our career. And some of us, God, are on the other end of the timeline. And we look back and we see things that we would like to go back and change, things that we have grappled with in our own heads and hearts time and time again. It doesn't matter where we stand today, God. We need you. We need you to pave the way for those of us who have much life left to live. And God, for those who are closer to the finish line, we need forgiveness. And we need the ability to trust that your grace is as good as you say that it is. To fall into your arms, God. To give ourselves over to you. I pray that you would lead us into the healthiest form of desperation that we can experience and that you would guide our eyes and our hearts and our ears and our minds away from the idols that have tempted us for so many years and that maybe for the first time, God, we would find freedom as we bring those cravings and those wounds to you. Give us great wisdom, God, as some of us process things that we need to share with people that we've never spoken about before. Give us great care as some of us are approached seemingly at random from people that we've known for a very long time who have some baggage that they need to spill today. I pray, God, that we would be gracious as we confess and receive confession and as we repent and participate in our own repentance. We love you, God. We trust that you will heal us. Only you can. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.